So here's the challenge. I don't have an exact number, but there's going to be something north of 150 people today. You're going to be crowded into two stadiums to watch the equivalent of 44 people chase around a little leather ball. And over 150,000 people are going to be paid thousands of thousands of dollars to be in this place. They're going to survive and endure the elements. And they are going to be flat out excited that they get to be there. So here's the challenge. All that stuff going on throughout the United States. And why can we not today be at least happy (laughs) that we get to be inside the church Today, Ron said something, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't tattle on you, but he said, you know, sometimes we need to just set bowls of picante sauce out. Just get people fired up when they come in to church. <clears throat> so if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, Spence, I'm tired. Spence, I've had a long week. Spence, i got a lot of stuff going on in my life. Spence, I wanted another three hours to sleep in bed. Spence, it's cold outside. I appreciate your opinion, but... We're in God's house. So we can be excited, we can be awake, and we can say, you know what? If the pagans can out-celebrate us today, why can't we sit in here and at least be happy that we get to be in the house of the Lord today? So I appreciate you, Greg, and especially Tanya. Tanya, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. So thank you, men, for taking up the offering. If you have a Bible a Bible with you, something that you can open up, or if nothing else, something at least you can turn on. Um, Join me in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And then also on the back side of that, um, there'll be some notes if you want to follow through through on our time in the Word this morning. So Exodus chapter 2. Growing up in the McConnell household, we didn't have a lot of things as far as for excitement in the way of media or in screens, but there were a select number of movies that we watched with intense repetition to the point that I remember hearing my parents early on say that that was going to be a means of measurement in potential daughter-in-laws or a son-in-law is had they seen these movies before and I mentioned this a couple Wednesday nights ago the princess bride and I got some blank looks like we have never seen that movie preacher we have no idea what you're talking about and somewhere and I mean this tongue-in-cheek but somewhere I think that we should have some type of to be a member in good standing at First Baptist Church Wellston you need to have watched these requirements and on that list would be the man from snowy river Now, if you haven't watched that, I invite for you to go home and get right with Jesus and watch that movie. You can even watch the one that comes after the sequel, The Return to Snow River. Both of them are phenomenal movies. But it's something about movies that when I start thinking about where we're going to be at in the text, it makes me think about scenes from movies, scenes from movies, scenes from movies. But it's kind of hard if we haven't all seen the same movie to talk about the same scene. But one of the things that we can talk about is the difference between coincidence and providence. That's where we're going to be at this morning in Exodus chapter 2. Talking about primarily the providence of God. Why do I, why, how do I get to where I'm at in these last five minutes? Well, here's how my mind works. My mind works is that so many times we experience the things in life that sometimes people would say, well, that was just coincidence or that's just coincidental, but we don't ever realize or think about how much of it was the providence of God. Now, that providence, that word providence, it just simply means that God has an ability, God has the uh, prerogative to 
provide for his will. He can provide for the people's needs. He can provide for the things that, that, that they have before them. And because of who God is in God's providence can sometimes do things that you and I might be tempted to think as, well, that was kind of coincidental, but actually it was providential. Makes me think back to the Manfredson River movie. There's a, a scene in there that he's on foot. He doesn't have a horse. He needs a horse. And Uncle Spur just so happens to have the biggest, the best, the most incredible mountain horse a man has ever laid his eyes on. And all of a sudden, huh, coincidental, there Uncle Spur has a horse he's going to give to me. Another coincidental scene. They're chasing these pack of wild horses and they race them off of the cliff. And here comes the, oh, I just i got to go home and watch this movie now. Oh, the, the main character, Jim, and all of a sudden all the cowboys, all the dudes are stopped at the cliff, and all of a sudden here comes Jim, and as he jumps over the edge of the cliff, he's got the bull whip. I, th I thought maybe Madison could do that last night. He comes over that thing, and he's got that bull whip, and he cracks it. I mean, some people say, well, it's just coincidental that everybody is there to watch him dive off of the cliff. No, that's providence. See, the writer of the script knew that this is what he was wanting to show in the course of the movie. You know, when you come down to set and write a movie, you can set some of these things in that we might think is coincidental as we're watching it, but it's providential because the writer of the story has already determined how the story will play out. And here in Exodus 2, Exodus 2 this morning, we're going to see the providence of God on display. And I realize it's easy for you and I to come to a narrative, because all this is is a, a narrator. Moses is the writer. He's telling the story of his own birth. But you, you can come into this, and you can think, well, one, it's Old Testament. One, it's a little bit dated. One, it's about Moses. It's not about me. And you and I can start to find all the things that keep us separate from this text of Scripture. But what I want to do is I want to just ask you, just for the next few moments, to think about the things that we see God doing in the life of Moses and to see that God still do, still can and still does these things in our lives today. And so many times we think things are providential. I think things are coincidental. And we never fully understand how many things might be providential. So I want to show you some ways. I want to show you some ways that God reveals his providence through the life of Moses and hopefully make some connections to where we're at today and how God can still display these, these abilities of providence in our lives today. So Exodus chapter 2. <clears throat> Listen how the story then picks up. Verse 1. Follow along in your copy. Now a man... From the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Then the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when, he, when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, if you weren't here the last couple of Sundays, let me just kind of catch you up where we're at. If you go back up to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here is the story. Jacob, under when Joseph's period of time, Jacob and all of his family, the Bible says 70 persons, migrated from the land of Canaan, were under a term of severe drought, came to the land of Goshen, there in the land of Egypt. Their generations passed. 
the people of Israel grew and grew numerically to the point that now, several generations later, you have a Pharaoh says, you know what, we are going to enslave them. We are going to oppress them. We are going to hold them down. So they began this forced labor if you will, and that didn't deter them. They still kept growing, and they started to become threatened that they might grow more numerous than us, more mighty than us, more in ability than us, and they might overtake us. So they decided to say, well, then here's what we're going to do. We're just going to kill all the male Hebrews, and that will repress the population. Midwives wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it on their own. And the chapter 1 ends, Pharaoh is looking at all of his people and he's saying, if you see a male Hebrew, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to throw it into the Nile. In other words, kill the baby boy. That should be in the back of our brains when we start here in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1. And you think about a man and a woman, they come together, they get married, no big deal. Verse 2, she conceived and bore a son. Now we have a problem. What I want you to see in these first few verses is that sometimes God shows his providence to us in times of desperation. In times of desperation. Now, when you come back to this passage, and you look there at verse 2, and it says, The woman conceived and bore a son. She saw that he was a fine child, and she hid him three months. It was the idea that the mother looks and says, You know what? I am so grateful that I have this baby boy. There are some people today in this world, they get pregnant, and they think of it as a burden. They think of it as an obligation. They think of it as being a negative thing in their life. And what does the mother knows? The mother knows this is what Pharaoh says. This is what other people might be doing. But the mother knows this isn't a burden. This is a baby. And so she sits there for three months. What are we sitting at? Seven weeks? Six weeks? Six weeks? Feels like six years. Huh. I'm ready for this kid to start doing dishes and doing some sweeping the floors. I mean, it's kind of one of those things, but it's one of those. But can you imagine for three months you're hiding this baby? And for three months you know what Pharaoh expects. For three months you know what people will say. For three months you know what may be coming. And for three months, for three months, every single day you're agonizing, what am I going to do? What is God going to do? How is this going to be resolved? How is this going to take place? And for three months this woman is in anguish. This mother is in challenge and bereft because she's saying, I don't know what to do. Sometimes sometimes we're not listening to God because we're so assumed we know what we're supposed to do on our own. So we're not paying attention to God. We're not listening to God because God, I've got to figure it out on myself. I've got problems. I can go to man to get my solutions. I don't have to go to my creator. And sometimes we don't get desperate because we're not dependent upon God. And Satan, oh, Satan is so good about saying, well, hey, as long as you depend upon me, I'll just keep you going. Something Adam Carter and I are constantly in debate about is this idea of subscriptions. Oh, it seems like all over the place now, every single website, every single company, every single whatever doesn't want to just sell you a product and say, here you go. No, they want to put you on the month-to-month plan. And it's one of those things, and I'm over there going, you know what? No, I want to pay one fee, give me my item, give me my product, and let me have it. And Adam's like, oh, no, the month-to-month thing's good because he's got a different philosophy. And that's fine. That's fine. He can be wrong. But it's one of those things that we can, we can go back and forth, but they're constantly trying to get you into the system. That's what Satan will do. 
You want to find your delight in the things of this world? There'll be a new model every year. You want to find your relief in the things of this world? There'll be some way, some opportunity, some medication, something, something out there somewhere that will satisfy what you need. And yet, for some times, for some reasons, and in some of the ways of God, we need to get to the point that we become desperate waiting on God. So the mother here in this scene, the mother here in this story, she has this three-month-old baby. She's like, I don't know what to do. It's now three months. It's getting to the point that somebody's going to find out. Something's going to take place. What in the world am I supposed to do? She's at a moment of desperation. And yet, you and I might look at it and say it's a problem. But really, God looks at it and sees an opportunity. We've had some opportunities around this church as things have changed and things have gone through a certain amount of time of transition, and some people look at it and say, well, that's a problem, and I say, oh, no, no, that is an opportunity. So here in the story, the mother gets to the point. She doesn't know what else to do. She doesn't have any other ideas what to do. So what does she do? She makes a basket. She covers it in the bitmen and the pitch so that away it will float. She puts Moses in the basket. She doesn't just put him in the river and let the current take him. No, she puts him in the reeds so he's kind of stuck, hoping that maybe, maybe somebody, somebody will find it and will have something else to do. She doesn't know what else to do. She She's in complete desperation. I want to remind you this morning that it's in those moments of desperation where our dependency is revealed. When you don't know what else to do and you've exhausted all of your hopes and your ideas and then you just look and say, God, what am I supposed to do? Let me remind you, you go, uh, you keep your stay there in Exodus 2, or if you want to go with me over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, there's a, there's a story about Jesus and his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are out there in the middle of the boat, and it has, uh, the storm has come upon them. Jesus is walking on the water. They think, they're not really sure if it's Jesus or not, and they cry out. Jesus says, oh no, it is me. And at one point, Peter says, well, if it's you, if you're really Jesus, and you're really walking on the water in the midst of the storm, tell me to come come to you. And Jesus is like, well, then come on. And so what the Bible tells us is Peter gets out of the boat and he's walking on water, right? And he's thinking he's all cool and he gets closer to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that as he gets to Jesus, instead of looking at Jesus, he starts looking around and he notices the storm, the wind, and the waves. And then as soon as he takes his eye off of Jesus, he starts sinking. He starts sinking. And it says, <coughs> It says, Peter got out of the boat, he walked in the water, came to Jesus, but when he saw the wind and was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, verse 30, Matthew 14, Lord, save me. He was sinking in the water, he had no other hope, he had no other help, he had no other place to turn, and in a moment of desperation, he was completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes in these deepest moments of desperation is when God providentially reveals himself and shows us how he can work in our lives. The question is, is how desperate are we going to get to wait and trust on God? Sometimes we don't see those miracles. Sometimes we don't see those acts that God is doing because you and I never get dependent enough upon 
God. So the mother, the mother here in Exodus, back in Exodus 2, the mother, she lays him in the river. She lays him there in the reeds on the riverbank, and she sets back. And the mother goes on. We don't know where she goes. Verse 4, Miriam, the sister, we know her name is Miriam from later on in the text, but the younger sister sits there and watches. So the first way I want you to see that God provides his providence is through desperation. Because it's only because the mother put the baby in the basket, in the river, amongst the reeds, does the next thing happen? Verse 5. Now. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young men walked, young women, sorry, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Now, just think about this. Sometimes we come into these texts because we've already read on. So we already know what's going to happen. And we're like, oh yeah, we're familiar with this story. We're cool with this story. Imagine you're reading it or you're watching it for the first time and you don't know what's going to happen. You've got Pharaoh. Pharaoh had told everybody, you see a Hebrew male, you do what? You throw it in the river. So now you don't have just an under officer. You just don't have another Egyptian. You don't have another Hebrew wandering by. You have the daughter of Pharaoh. And what are the chances? What are the options that the mother would lay it there? And then here comes Pharaoh's daughter going to bathe, finds the baby. If you're the sister hiding off the woods, you're like, it can't get any worse. You see, we've read this story so many times in the Christian tradition, and we just assume, oh, whoa, whoa, see, that's a great thing, and oh, we're, we're already jumping along because we've already read it so many times before. But can you imagine Miriam? Can you imagine the sister? She is sitting there, and she is going, this is the worst. It can't get any worse. And I want you to see with me this morning that not only does God provide his providence in our desperation, but also in our timing. In the timing. God shows his providence. Because if you're the sister, you're the sister. And you're like, you know, this is the worst time. God, why could you have not let her take a bath tomorrow? God, why did you do this at this time and in this way and in this place? The timing is all terrible. But sometimes what we might think is the worst time may be the exact time that God is ready to work. Because what does this say? <laughs> Now the daughter, verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe of the river while her young women walked beside the river. And the, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Huh. So all of this is stirring. And you and I are watching this from 2,000 years later. And you and I are going, oh, 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 what is going on? What is going to happen? Verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him. I don't know if you're the underlining type. I don't know if you're the circling type. I don't know if you're the memorizing type. But those five words, she took pity on him. I, I submit to you this morning, these five words changed the entire future. Changed, changed everything. It changed the future of Moses. It changed the future of the Jewish people. It changed our Bibles. Do you understand who wrote this? Moses. 
And you know what? If the, the daughter of Pharaoh, the, 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 yeah, the daughter of Pharaoh, if she had looked in the basket and said, oh, it's a Hebrew child, a Hebrew male child, do you know what daddy said? And just flipped the basket over and walked away, everything would be different. Does that mean that God still can't bring about his plans through another means? Oh, no, absolutely. God can do what God wants to do. But I suspect, I, I suspect, I submit to you, I submit to you that everything would have been different because Moses wouldn't be writing the book of Exodus because everything changed. These five words changed everything. She took pity on him. Everything hinged and changed. So if you can underline, if you can circle, if you can highlight, if you can star, if you can memorize, put these words down. She took pity on whatever. She took pity on him. It's not just the only five words that change things. Got me thinking about some other five words that sometimes change the course of our lives. Let me just give you some examples. Bad news. It is cancer. Your father has passed away. Sorry, the company is downsizing. Or maybe a couple that have changed my life personally. Jaylene, will you marry me? Congratulations. It is a boy. Or maybe some ones that can impact every single one of us in this room. God, I am a sinner. God, will you forgive me. I will trust in you. I choose to follow you. Now, however, you can say, well, I don't like five words. I want to do three words. I want to do six words. I want to do 10 words. I'm just submitting to you this morning that when it comes to God's timing, God's timing is there. And yet we do not control the time. And yet these five words changed everything and God is reminding us through Exodus 2, do you not understand that God's providence can come in our desperation and it can also come in his timing? So just picture the scene. You got Miriam and she's off in the, she's off in the weeds. She's watching from a far distance. Pharaoh's daughter comes down. She opens the basket. She sees Moses. She took pity on him. The daughter is watching. She sees what is taking place. She's like, oh, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. And so what does the sister do? What does this sister do? It says, verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Something else I want you to think with me about when it comes to the timing of God. At first, we might think it was the terrible timing that Pharaoh's daughter came. But God used that and was able to maneuver that and leverage that for his good. But then also, there's another aspect of it, is that you have the, the, the sister, Moses' sister. Where is she at? She is sitting there waiting, ready to see what God will do. Ready to act. I heard somebody say it this week. There was a phrase, and, and I'm stealing it, and I know I'm stealing it, and I'm plagiarizing it, and I'm telling you I'm doing it, so therefore you got to be okay with it. So we're all going to think about it. And it's the phrase that I put there in your notes. If you stay ready, you won't have to get ready. 
What does that mean, Spence? That means, that means if we're saying, oh God, oh God, do something miraculous, then we need to be ready. So when God's ready, we're ready. And not looking at God and saying, oh, no, oh hold up, God, i got to get ready now. If we stay ready, we won't have to get ready. So where's Moses' sister? She's over in the weeds. Why? Because she's ready. Whatever God's going to do, she is ready to respond. And then what does it say? It says Moses' sister. Then goes gets the mother. It wasn't like the mother said, I'm going out. I'm checking out. I'm going to go. And I'm just going to be gone. I set my boy in the weeds. I don't know what's going to happen to my boy. I'm bereaved. I'm grieved. All these things. No. The mother's somewhere close by because the sister goes against the mother. People didn't know about God's timing, but they were ready for whatever God was going to do. Let me put it to you like this. What if God today answered our prayers from yesterday? You know, we have people from time to time that will sit back and say, Oh God, please, please save this community of Wellston. Please save these people. What if he did? What are we going to do? God, I want you to do miraculous work in this person's life. And what if he does? Then what are we going to do? See, there's an element to that. We're saying, God, we want you to work, and we have no idea on the timing on when is God going to work. So the best thing for us to do is to stay ready so we don't have to get ready. Moses' sister is sitting in the reeds ready for whatever God's going to do. She is ready to respond. And God shows his providence not only in the mother's desperation, but she also shows his providence in the timing of the scenario. And yet we just assume that we, God's going to send us a postcard. He's going to send us a letter when he's going to do something crazy. You know, everybody, this last few days they've been talking about today and tomorrow, Tuesday, and oh, oh, the world's going to come to an end. I think Chad said it the other day. He said, uh, I think Snowgeddon or Icegeddon, some of those things. I mean, there's always these threats, and you get... <laughs> you get panic pain on Channel 9, and he, he, he's always... He, he, he gets paid off of viewers, and so the more people are listening to him claim the end of the world is coming, and the more people, I mean, but you'll get that. And you'll get all those individuals sit there and like, oh, no, it can't get any worse. It won't get any worse. And, you know, nobody knows. Last week they told me on my phone, on my weather up on my phone, we are going to get five inches of snow in my house. They lied, and they still have a job. You never know. You know there's something we do know. That God's timing is perfect. We know that God has his way to do things the way that he chooses to do them. So then let's get to this. Let me, let's get to this last point. I'm running quickly out of time. I want you to see with me in this passage how God shows his providence in desperation, in timing, and then this last one in preparation. In preparation. Where do I get this from, Spence? Well, <clears throat> Verse 8 of chapter 2, and Pharaoh's daughter, call, said, or Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. So now you have the mother of Moses, Moses' mom. I think if my memory is right, it's Jacobed. Moses' mom comes up, and so you, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Miriam and Jacobed come up, and they're standing before the Pharaoh's uh, daughter. And does Pharaoh's daughter realize that's mom and sister? I don't know. I don't know what's there, and you, sometimes you'll hear preachers, and they'll take a lot of, a, a lot of a, liberties with this passage, but you now have the sister and the mother, and what happens? What takes place? If you continue reading, it tells us. Oh, verse 9, 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. Then I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Verse 10, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and became, and he became her son. She named him Moses because he said, I drew him out of the water. Desperation, timing, and preparation. Moses' mom comes in front of Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter says, Not only do I want you to take and nurse the child and rear the child, but I'm going to pay you to do what you wanted to do already by yourself. And then you go back, and even it's true even in, in modern times, and you start thinking about the most formative years in a child's life is when? The early years. Those first three and four to five years, those are the most formative years. And some people, some people even claim those are the years that sets the majority of the personality. They set the majority of the worldview. They set the majority of the behavior and the attitudes and the, 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 the uniqueness of the individuals in those first few years. So what's happening in those first few years? Moses is with mom. <coughs> Moses is being brought up in the Hebrew tradition. Moses is being right where... God wants him to be to prepare him for 80 years later. Some of you in this room have a bit of an ability to shoot firearms. and Some of you may be considered pretty good sharpshooters. But I think all of us in this room would probably be willing to admit that open sights, 300 yards is a pretty good shot. Now, you can go out farther than that. I know some of you in this room, well, I can do 1,500 yards open sight with three my, both my eyes closed. Great. But most of us mere mortals, 300 yards with open sights is a pretty good shot. Now, you can walk roughly 300 yards. The average person, average adult, walking speed, you can walk that 300 yards in roughly about three minutes. My point is, is that as far as you can see to shoot, you can walk in three minutes. Let me, let me try to put it this way. You're only seeing about three minutes in front of you. Do you see where I'm, see where I'm connecting this up at? So if you only, only can really reliably shoot 300 yards, you can make that in three minutes. So really, you're only seeing three minutes in front of you. If you're driving down the road and you're driving 60 miles an hour, and they tell you you're supposed to be looking three seconds in front of you, that's roughly about 275 feet. See, we live most of our lives, the majority of our lives are lived in three to five to ten minute increments. Oh, we say, well, I'm looking out further beyond that. I'm looking 20 years down the road when I'm going to retire. Good, good. But the reality is none of us really know what's going to happen five hours from now versus five years from now. Only thing that we're really seeing is three to five minutes in front of us. You see, what I want you to understand is that God's vision reaches farther than our vision. You see, here in this story, God is looking at Moses, and God is looking at Pharaoh's daughter, and God is looking at Miriam, and God is looking at this scenario. God is seeing 80 years down the road. They're only seeing five minutes in the moment. God's vision reaches farther. And not just that, but God's timing is perfect. And additionally to that, God prepares for a purpose. So here in this story, you see two things at least taking place. 
Moses is going to be raised in his family's home for the first few years to develop that Hebrew education, that Hebrew foundation. And then he's going to go and spend time in the house of Pharaoh. Why? Well, this is how my sanctified, sanctified imagination works. They're having a board meeting. I know this is completely my imagination. Okay, this is not biblical. My imagination. They're having a board meeting. God's sitting in the board meeting. He's got Jesus Christ over here to this side. He's got the Holy Spirit over here next to this side. He's got Michael the archangel over there. He's got Gabriel and some other, some other lieutenants in the angelic army that are sitting there. And he's got them in a the table. And this is the vision casting meeting that they're going to have right there. And God's sitting there and he's like, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. See, I got this guy named Moses. And this guy named Moses is going to be born. He's going to be born at this house. And this is going to be the address. And then there's going to be a problem. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, but, but God, do you not understand the, the decree that's going to be there? And God's like, no, no, I've got it. I've got this figured out. This is how this is going to work. And then as he's sitting there talking, he's like, okay, so now the mother's going to put the baby in the river. And so you have, might have Gabriel over there. And he's like, oh, God, you know what? That, I understand what you're doing there, but do you not understand that a basket in the river is going to sink? And God's like, no, I've got that figured out. I'm going to put some bitmen. I'm going to put some pitch on there. And it's going to float. And this, this, this is going to take place. And this is how this is going to work out. And can you imagine him laying it all out? And then they're saying, well, we don't understand. And God says, because you haven't seen the next chapter of the story. You see, guys, after Moses is reared in his family's home, and then he goes to Pharaoh's home, while he's in Pharaoh's home, he will get to secular education. He will be exposed to government and to leadership and all the things that are required to lead over half a million people through the desert, leaving Egypt, headed to Mount Sinai. <coughs> He's going to be, have to be exposed to the patience. He's going to be, have to be exposed to the workings of managing people. All of these things are going to take place because I am going to bring Moses back to the house of Pharaoh at 80 years old. And he's going to lead my people out. And it's all going to be because of the preparation that he has had from this point forward. How often do you think about the preparation that God has put in your life? Late 1990s, early 2000s, I worked. I worked building electrical substations, electrical transmission lines, electrical distribution lines. I left that. Tucker and I went to the oil field. For five years, I spent time chasing around drilling rigs in the oil field. And then I find myself in southwestern Oklahoma. Serving at a church and going, I don't understand why in the world or how in the world any of that stuff helps in this context. The church I was serving at in southwestern Oklahoma, 80% of the people in the church were connected to the oil field. And you know what? Next thing you know, you can talk to people. You have a, a point of connection with people. There are stories that you have or experiences that you have that you were able to speak to or speak from that is able to be a point of connection and relationship with other people. Why? Because even in our disobedience or even in our obedience, God can use our past to prepare us for our future. And sometimes we look around and we start saying, well, my past is what defines me, and my past is so bad, God can't ever use me in the future. And I want to tell you, because I am a living, I'm a living, breathing product, that God can use your past for something in the future. 
And it may be the things that God is using in the past is to prepare you for what he has in the future. Maybe there are things that are going on in your life right now that God is doing in preparation for what it has in front of you. Maybe God is doing things right now in the life of this church to prepare us for the next chapter he has in front of us. And maybe all we think is about is in five minutes and three minutes and five day and five week and five month snippets and God is saying, no, no, I'm looking at the 50 years. I'm looking at the 80 years. And you have no idea how my providence is at play today to bring about my will for the future. So this whole story in Exodus 2, Sometimes you and I may come to this in a Sunday school lesson or, or whatever. We may just think, okay, so the birth of Moses. And that's great. And that's true. And that is good. But do not get through Exodus 2 and the birth of Moses and just say, it's just the story about a baby being born. No, it's a story about how God providentially reveals himself to his people. And I submit to you this morning that God is still providentially revealing himself to us today. And I wonder how many of these acts of providence that God is bringing upon our lives that we're just flat flat too busy to see taking place. So how do we live this set-apart life? That's been kind of the overarching theme. You even see that in your notes as far as this whole story of, uh, of Exodus. What I've tried to do is frame this as how this looks for us being set apart. So we talked about a legacy in Exodus chapter 1. We talked about last week about the, how the world will set us apart. And then what we think about, well, how do we understand this in light of being set apart? Well, there's three things at the bottom of your notes, and then we'll go home. How do we live set apart in this world in light of the passage before us? First thing. Be, best, be desperate to be dependent. Be desperate to be dependent. I didn't realize we were going to sing Behold Our God this morning. That's a song that frames our focus. Not behold my job. Behold my possession. Behold me. Behold our God. And just as much as I would like for you to focus on that, I'd also like you to focus on the idea of being desperate to be dependent. See, sometimes we may think, well, that just doesn't make sense, and we just discard it and go on. No, we need to be desperate to be dependent. We need to be desperate enough, knowing that we do not have it of our own. As Tanya's saying, we are not sufficient. He is sufficient. We're going to be desperate enough to be dependent upon God. We're not going to be desperate enough to be dependent upon this world. We're not going to be dependent upon uh, another person's relationship. We're not going to be dependent upon our identity. We're not going to be dependent upon the promises of this world around us. We're going to be dependent upon God. And we're going to be desperate enough to be dependent upon God. Second way we can do this being set apart is to lose track of time. <clears throat> to lose track of time. You see, sometimes there's, there's two sides of this coin. Some of you young people are sitting here, and you think, I've got all the time in the world. You old people, you don't, but in, your, in, your, in all of your maturity right now, in all of your maturity right now, you think, I've got all the time in the world. All the time. And then there's another side of the coin in the room. They're like, we don't know how much time. And some of you have already gone through this before, but you know, there's something about 
the death of a parent that just kind of changes some perspective. So my dad was born in 1958. So now it's like every since the passing, when somebody says that they were born in this year, they talk about the year that they were born or some event, I, I automatically go and I think about 1958. He was 64 years old when he passed away. Which means, which means, which means, if I follow in his footsteps, I've got 22 years left. Which means, I've already lived two-thirds of my life. Now some of you in this room are like, well, Spence, what does it matter? It changes your concept of time. It changes your mindset about time. And sometimes in your youthfulness, you start to think, I got all the time in the world to make a decision for Jesus. I got all the time in the world to change what I'm doing. I got all the time in the world to get my stuff together and to live right for God. But for now, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want. Because you think you have all the time in the world. And there's another camp over here, like the people like me and even older than me, that think, well, I don't have very much time. So I'm going to do everything I can to enjoy the last time I have because I don't know how much time I have. So I'm going to do everything I can to enjoy my life now. And both of those are dangerous places to be because neither one of us in this room know exactly how much time we have. But we do know that God has given us the time to bring glory to Him. So instead of being on the camp and saying, well, I've got all kinds of time, or I will give God my time later, or instead of being in the camp and all we're doing is thinking about, well, I don't have time, and the little time I do have, I'm going to spend it on me, we both need to come together and realize, you know what? We are way too fixated on time and way too little fixated on the creator of time. So lose. Lose the track of time. And this last one. Glorify God in it. I put some dot, 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 because I don't know what it may be that you need to glorify God in, but whatever it is, whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation is, you might have the biggest jerk of a boss that anybody's ever had. Glorify God in it. You might have the most dire, worst medical diagnosis anybody could ever have. Glorify God in it. You might have the biggest challenge. You might have the biggest hurdle. You might have the biggest persecution. You might have the biggest opposition ever. Anybody, glorify God in it. Why? Because you don't know what God may be doing in your life today to providentially bring about the salvation of people to come after you. <clears throat> you have no idea how God may be using your circumstance right now so that people thousands of years later are pointed to God because of what you've done today. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us understand that what God providentially does in our lives is allow us to live a life set apart. Not because of the, the gratification we get in three minutes, not because of the response that we get in three hours, but because we're living for the sake of eternity. And I wonder, this morning, are you desperate? Are you waiting on God's timing and submitted to God's timing? Or are you being patient, letting God use this as a time to prepare you for what he has in front of you? It could be this morning that you're here and you haven't thought about what God wants to do with you or your life. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know what God wants to do with you in your life. The only problem is what he wants is not what you want.
Or maybe you're here this morning and all you're doing is being fixated on your problems instead of on God. Or maybe you're here and you haven't even asked how God wants to use you in this season of life to bring glory to Him. You bow your heads with me.